my friends, and welcome again to the Bible Lab, the podcast where we explore major themes from every book of the Bible in order to see how each page points to Jesus, who he is, and what he's done. I'm your host, Andy Wood. Thank you for joining me, friends. We are looking at the book of Exodus. And before we dive into our second theme, just a couple of things to remind you of. One, in almost every episode that we're going to do in this second and probably the third season as well, we are using the book, What the Old Testament Authors Really Cared About. So highly encourage you guys to go out and purchase that book. Check it out. It is really understandable, approachable for believers of every age and stage. And it's really an excellent book. So I am using this book quite heavily. So just to make sure I point that out. Second thing, uh, we have a website. It's BibleLabPodcast.com. So I encourage you guys to go and check that out. You can see previous episodes we've done. We've got them organized by book and by theme. And while you're there, we just encourage and humbly ask you guys to click on that share link and share it with people that you know, people that you know, or hey, they're trying to read through the Bible for the first time, or hey, we were actually talking about this, and I know you did an episode on that topic. Would love for you guys to help us get the word out about Bible Lab. But with that being said, let's dive into our second theme in the book of Exodus. The author of Exodus stressed Yahweh's passion to be known by all in the world. A key word in the book of Exodus is the word know, as in K-N-O-W. Egyptian leaders, for example, are said not to know. In Exodus 1.8, there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And then when Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, the Lord said, let my people go. Pharaoh says, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. God, on the other hand, is said to know. For example, in Exodus 2, 23 through 25, during those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob and God knew. If God's only goal was to get his people out of Egypt, he was very inefficient. I mean, think about it. We're talking about the God of the universe who spoke and the stars came into being. If all he wanted was to get his people out of Egypt and get them to Mount Sinai, he could have snapped his heavenly fingers and the people could have just disappeared and then popped up at Mount Sinai. That's not what he does. And examining the use of the word no shows that Yahweh's primary concern in the Exodus was the revelation and demonstration of his own name and glory. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, you know, that sounds a lot like for a Christian with their salvation. Like when we become a Christian, God could just, you know, pop us up to heaven and we wouldn't have to go through all this sanctification process. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of connections like that in the Old and the New Testament, and, and you are wise to see them. So everything that I'm saying today about the nation of Israel, yes, you are on good grounds to kind of expand outward and towards yourself and say, hey, this is what God is doing in my life. God, God's concern is not to be as efficient as possible, as we understand efficiency, but rather to bring glory to his name. And that's what God's after. And that helps us see and make sense of what God is doing in our life as well. So let's examine this theme of knowing Yahweh. The battle between Pharaoh and Yahweh is dominated by knowing God through personal experience. God acts against Egypt so that first and foremost, Israel might know that he is the Lord. Exodus 6, 7, I will take you, the nation of Israel, to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I'm the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Then Exodus 10, 2, God says, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson 
how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you and they and their children and their children may know that I am the Lord. Now, when we talked about Genesis 1 and 2, we pointed out that God's name is used in Genesis. So it's not the case that the name Yahweh had never been heard before Exodus chapter 3. But Moses and the people are coming to know God in a much fuller sense. You might think about a a celebrity that you like, that you know perhaps an embarrassing amount of information about, but then you actually meet that person and you come to know them in a much fuller, deeper, truer sense. This is what's happening for the nation of Israel. They knew stories about God, but now they're going to meet him face to face and they're going to come to a much deeper understanding of who he is. His presence and fulfillment of promises are going to be revealed in some new ways in the book of Exodus. Moses and Israel come to know Yahweh more fully as not only the creator, but also the covenant keeper. And Israel's deliverance from Egypt was to be remembered. This is not something that God says, hey, you know, don't worry about it. Don't ever mention it again. Like it's no big deal. No, he wants them to remember this. And we'll talk about how he's going to make sure they remember that. And it is to be remembered as a display of Yahweh's power Egypt at this time is the most powerful nation on earth, and God effortlessly removes Israel from their hand. A display of Yahweh's uniqueness. He's the only God in existence, certainly the only God that can do something like this. It's to be displayed as a remembrance of Yahweh's faithfulness. Remember, all of these things that he's doing in Exodus are the things that he promised to do in Genesis. It's a display of Yahweh's presence. He doesn't send an emissary. He's with Moses And he's doing all these things to be with his people. And it's a display of Yahweh's generosity. These people don't deserve this. There's nothing good about the nation of Israel, but God has chosen them and he is generous and gracious to people who don't deserve it. Israel's first response to God's redemption is a song of praise encompassing all of these themes. And I'm going to read Exodus 15, 1 through 18, just so you can kind of get a sense of how redeemed people should sound when they're talking about what God has done for them. So Exodus 15, 1 through 18, this is just after the destruction of the Egyptian army in the Red Sea. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to Yahweh, saying, I will sing to Yahweh, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Yahweh is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My father's God, and I will exalt him. Yahweh is a man of war. Yahweh is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Yahweh, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Yahweh, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, the Egyptians, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. But you blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Yahweh, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble, pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. 
all the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone till your people, O Yahweh, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Yahweh, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. Yahweh will reign forever and ever. For the redeemed, this revelation of Yahweh, this knowledge of Yahweh leads to life. But to the Egyptians and to all who would refuse to acknowledge Yahweh's lordship, meeting Yahweh is a disaster. To the Egyptians, the knowledge of Yahweh brought humiliation, destruction, and death. When Pharaoh says, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? I don't know the Lord. Well, God is more than happy to educate Pharaoh, and he gets a lesson he will never forget. The no texts, K-N-O-W, texts that refer to the Egyptians reveal two main concepts. One, Pharaoh learns of Yahweh's special relationship with his people. Moses is not just say, hey, let uh, you know those people go. I just picked them at random. No, let my people go. These are God's people. There's a distinction between those who are gods and not gods. And God is, I mean, you think a mama bear robbed of her cubs is angry. There's nothing compared to Yahweh when someone comes in between him and his people. The second concept that Pharaoh is going to learn is that Yahweh is incomparable to any gods known in Egypt. These gods don't actually exist. And even if they did, they can't hold a candle to Yahweh. It's been pointed out, and I'm not going to go into, you know, in depth in this, this is not my field of expertise, but every single one of the plagues that God sends targets a particular area of so-called authority of an Egyptian god. Right? You can think about the sun god, and so God blots out the sun. Think about the Nile River, so God just turns it into blood. And, and some would argue that every single one of these plagues is like that. And whether that is true or not, I think what we can be certain of is that God is showing the totality of his control over all of life. The sun, crops, the weather, water, the human body, insects, animals, you name it, God is sovereign over it. There is no God like Yahweh. He owns the entire earth. And Yahweh's goal, he's upfront about, is to gain glory by conquering his foes, both the made-up divine foes, the gods of Egypt, and his human foes like Pharaoh and his arrogance and pride. God says in Exodus 12, I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, the night of the Passover, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. Exodus 14, 4, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all of his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. Exodus 15, 11, we asked that question in, in the song we read, who is like you among the gods? And the answer they're expecting, the right answer is no one. Absolutely no one. When the people are journeying from Egypt to Mount Sinai, they run into Moses' father-in-law, a man named Jethro. And Moses tells Jethro what's been going on. And Jethro's response shows that Yahweh's plan worked. When Moses tells Jethro what God has done, Jethro says, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods. That's exactly what God wanted. So how does God wage this war? What are his battle weapons? Well, plagues and Pharaoh's hardened heart. 
Exodus 7-12 through 12 recounts these ten mighty acts of God against Egypt. We call, commonly call them the ten plagues. And the most important thing to remember about these acts is that God initiated and controls each act. They come when God calls. They leave when God says, go. God says, okay, hail falls here, but not here. Boils here, but not there. This house, not that house. I mean, God is in control of every single aspect. Now, when I say Pharaoh's hardened heart, that's something that can make us feel very uncomfortable. So I understand that. Let's kind of talk about Pharaoh's hardened heart. Yahweh's working for his own glory. And that glory involves judgment on the wicked. And Pharaoh's hard heart consistently results in his refusal to let Israel go, and therefore it results in Yahweh judging them. Now, when you read through the text of Exodus, sometimes it says that Pharaoh hardens his own heart. Other times it says that Yahweh hardens it. Sometimes it just says that his heart grew hard. But what's important for you to note is that the first mention of Pharaoh's heart is actually not when Moses is in Egypt, but it's when Moses is talking to God in the burning bush. And there in Exodus 4, before Moses even steps foot in Egypt and speaks to Pharaoh, God says up front, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. He's going to do it. And there's a theological balance that we want to strike. We want to keep intention, Yahweh's divine sovereignty. He made Pharaoh, he made Pharaoh's heart, and God can do whatever he wants with everything that he made. And so if God chooses to sovereignly harden someone's heart so they will respond with rebellion and then are destroyed, then God has the right to do that. The other thing to keep in tension is Pharaoh's own personal responsibility and guilt. Yahweh's sovereignty does not make Pharaoh a robot or a puppet. It makes him a real human being who has real choices, and he makes the choice to harden his heart. Now, how can both of those be true at the same time? Individually, they make sense, right? Like, we, we have no problem understanding how Pharaoh is a responsible moral agent who's personally responsible for his choices. That's very easy for us to understand. And though we may not like it, we could also understand how Yahweh is sovereign and he could choose to harden someone's heart. What we do not understand, and I would say we will not fully understand, is how both of those things can be true at the same time. And this is why I talk about, uh, in my class, ants and algebra. I don't mean your mom's sister. I mean the six-legged bugs. If you went home today and you decided that you were going to teach an ant in your backyard algebra, friends, you could be the greatest teacher the world has ever known. You would not be able to teach that ant algebra. It's not because you're dumb. It's not because algebra is not actually real. It's because an ant's brain is not fitted with the capacity to understand algebra. And I would argue there are many truths in Scripture, the Incarnation, the Trinity, and Yahweh's sovereignty and our responsibility for our evil choices is another one of those topics that our brains are not fitted with the capacity to understand. And that's okay. So let us not choose one side or the other and ignore the text we don't like. Pharaoh is responsible. God is sovereign. The mistake that we want to avoid is that thinking that Yahweh and Pharaoh are equals, that you know Yahweh hardens 50% of Pharaoh's heart and Pharaoh hardens 50% and you know together we end up with a hard heart. No, Yahweh's in control from the very beginning. It's like I said in Exodus 4.21, the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Remember, Yahweh wants this battle to drag out publicly. 
He could just snap his fingers and boom, they're at Mount Sinai. He wants this battle to drag out publicly. And he wants it to drag out publicly so that all the world may know that he is God. I mean, you can't get much clearer than Exodus 9, 15 through 16. God says through Moses to Pharaoh, For by now, Pharaoh, I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. God says, man, plague one didn't have to be blood in the Nile. Plague one could have been every Egyptian's dead, and my people just walk over your bodies out of the grave. Well, why didn't God do that? Well, glad you asked. Verse 16, but for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. God wants to beat down the biggest bully on the block so that all the world will know that he is Yahweh. And in order to do that, to get the glory that God desires, he hardens Pharaoh's heart. Yahweh wants to be known and he controls how he will be known. He is God, but friends, he's also good. When we talk about these things, about hardening hearts and sovereignty, all of a sudden God can get really, really scary to us. And I I want there to be a holy reverence and awe. But I want us to remember that the God who sovereignly hardens hearts also is the God who sovereignly softens hearts. None of us were seeking God. None of us was seeking righteousness. We all had chosen rebellion. We were all shaking our fists at God. But the God of the universe saw our rebellion and he sent his son Jesus to die for us so that he could give us a new heart, a soft heart, a heart that loves him and so that he could be good to us. So I know, I understand the tendency, the temptation to have an unhealthy fear or resentment of God when we think about these types of things. But I want you to remember that yes, Yahweh is sovereign over Pharaoh's heart. There's just no way around it. But Yahweh has also sovereignly orchestrated your life so that he can redeem you and enjoy being with you for all of eternity. Keep that in mind as well. So friends, the next time we come together, Lord willing, we're going to look at Yahweh's power to redeem his people from slavery. But for now, take a and read. God bless.